38, that's on page 42 of the Church Bible. At the time, Judah left his brother, brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hirah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was a Kedib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to, sh- to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enan, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that she thought, for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah told, was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, if you recognize who seal and cord and stuff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you broke out, you've broken out. 
and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread in his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. And people said the Bible is an old dusty book that's boring. Well, there's quite a bit in this passage, isn't there? And we certainly need to pray uh, before we look at this story. Father God, uh, thank you so much um, for your word, the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed. And I pray that as we look at this darkest of dark stories today, Lord, out of the wreckage of sin and mess in this family in the book of Genesis, we would see your astonishing grace burst through. We pray that we'll see that wherever our situation is today, Lord, whether we're used to this story, we've heard this before, or whether we're shocked um, by the fact we've just heard it for the first time now. Please, for each one of us, would you show us what it means and how to live according uh, to what you say in your word here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for people in a situation like mine, uh, fairly recently just been at Bible College, Theological College, not many people leave getting really excited to preach Genesis chapter 38. And maybe you can imagine why that is. Prostitution, death, uh, attempted uh, burning of a family member, some pretty weird sort of family relationships. And that's not even all of the details in this passage in Genesis. I'm painfully aware we've got a fair bit to navigate over the next um, half an hour here. But actually the mess and, well, let's be honest, evil in this passage in Genesis 38 is perhaps not so different than 2022. Just this week, a man walked into a school in Texas and killed 19 pupils, more injured. Just this week, Kevin Spacey, the, the actor who we've seen, loved maybe on our screens, charged for sexual assault against three other men. Just this week, Amber Heard, in, in the court case with her ex-husband Johnny Depp, revealed she's had hundreds of daily death threats after testifying against her husband's abuse. And that's just the BBC headlines, and that's just this week, and that's just the things that made the news feeds. See, like the headlines, Genesis 38 that we've just heard read, it shows us the utter wreckage of sin. But it also shows the astonishing grace of God. See, into one of the, I think, one of the darkest chapters in the whole of the Old Testament, we see God redeem wicked acts and wicked people. And that is news that, well, our world needs to hear, and that is news that you and I need to hear as well. Can there be hope in the aftermath of, of the wreckage of sin? Well, by God's grace, yes, there can be. If you're joining us today, maybe for the first time, you think, gosh, I've picked an interesting one to join uh, in this series coming today, or whether you uh, may be away last week, you might not know that we're in a series at the end of the book of Genesis, I'm looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, perhaps you know the story. Um, it's familiar, isn't it, in lots of ways. And we said last week that the story of Joseph is really a story of God's providence accomplishing God's promises. 
That is God's providence. He he is in control of, of all the details in the story so that his covenant promises to his people can be worked out. And actually, as we come to this chapter today, it's a literary masterclass because last week we were following, do you remember the story of Joseph? He had been sold by his brothers and he sort of, you imagine him going off in the distance into slavery. And so we think, okay, there's tension. What has happened? We were left on that cliff edge. And actually chapter 38 says nothing at all about Joseph. That the author presses pause on that story so you have to come back next week to hear about Joseph next week. But he pressed pause there, and instead he turns his attention to Judah, one of the other brothers. Because God has got work to do, not just in Joseph or in Jacob, the dad, but also in Judah, this character we see here. Because he is going to be a key character, not just in the rest of Genesis, but as we'll see in the whole storyline of, of the rest of the Bible. So let's get into it. The first thing we see then in this chapter is Judah and sons, faithless evil. Judah then is one of the 12 brothers, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And do you remember last time that it was his idea, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph, his brother, into slavery. That was his idea. And so as we hear, we've got a chapter all about Joseph. Let's be honest, we've not got high expectations about someone who has just sold their brother into slavery. As we see in verse 1, if you lost your page, uh, it's on page 42, to have that open. He says this in verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. It's worth knowing that that Judah, uh, he's he's got a serious amount of baggage that he's carrying around, okay? Judah, as we see in the rest of Genesis, was was the fourth son of Leah, who was Jacob's unwanted wife. Okay, so he's he's the child, he's the the unwanted son, if you like, of an unwanted wife. And in the last chapter, do you remember that, not the technicolor dream coat, but the ornate robe was handed not to him, but to Joseph. And so it's not exactly hard for him to work out that he's not very high up on the pecking order of these brothers. He's carrying around a significant amount of baggage. And we're told in verse 1 that he left his brothers and went down. That is true geographically, that he went down. But as we'll see, it's also true morally. A couple of things flag that up. First of all, he leaves his brothers. And we might not might think, okay, he left his brothers. That's not, not so bad, is it? I mean, a bit of independence, maybe a gap year away from family. That's a good thing, right? But, well, actually, in the big picture of Genesis, it's really important. Because do you remember, this is the family that God has promised to work through. This is the family that God will bless. And through this family, the nations, the world will be blessed. This is the family whose offspring, whose child will be raised up to to crush Satan, the serpent, one day and reverse the curse of all that went wrong when sin entered into the world. That's this family. Judah is supposed to be part of God's big purposes. Yet he shows about as much interest in God's promises as my son Micah does to broccoli on his plate. He's just not interested at all. See, Judah is faithless here. And he turns his back, not just on his brothers, but on God's promises. That's further confirmed by verse 2, where it says that he married a Canaanite woman. Again, we think, 
Okay, no biggie. <laughs> uh, can't you marry whoever he wants if he's in love? Well, no. Not because God is racist, but because God warned that if, if God's people here, and the people of Israel to come, assimilated with the other nations, they would blend in with them into their moral wickedness and evil. And they would just sort of be the same as the nations around. God wanted them to be unique, to be different, to be distinct. And Judah knew this, but he ignored it. And actually in verse 2, the, the original language this is written echoes Genesis chapter 3, where we're told that Judah, with this Canaanite woman, literally it says, he saw and he took. A little bit like someone else in the Garden of Eden, seeing and taking. Like his dad, Jacob, Judah here uses women as he wants. He's not a good guy. After that, babies, we're told, come along. Three of them, in fact. The first one is called Ur. Um, we're about three weeks out, it appears, until our, our son is born. And I can promise that Ur has not made the shortlist of names. Um, but Ur is the first one. And then Onan is the second. And then Shelah is the third boy. And I think it's fair to say that the, the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is appropriate here. Look at verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. It's cultural in that time for the, the father to kind of arrange a wife for his, his son here, to, and it's Tamar who will be a key character uh, in this story. But we see in verse 7, do you see that? That God strikes down her husband. It's unspecified what exactly it is that he did, but we know that it's some kind of grave sin. This is the first time in the whole Bible where we're told that God did this. And remember, we've had the flood and the wickedness of humanity then, but for Ur, it seems to be even worse. And even his name in Hebrew spells evil backwards. Not a great choice of a name for your son, is it? <laughs> and so Tamar is suddenly, all of a sudden, a widow, and that activates something called leveret marriage. I think as we read these verses, as Ennis just read it out, it, it'll be an understatement to say that it's pretty shocking for our modern ears as we hear what takes place. It, it just feels worlds apart from our everyday experience, doesn't it? What's going on? Well, the biblical and, and ancient Near Eastern law of that time prohibited marriage between a man and his sister-in-law. That's incest. And we would say... Okay, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> but what happened if a husband died and left his widow behind childless without offspring was that the law then was that the brother was to marry her in order to raise offspring, a child, in the name of, of the brother who had died. This was intended to, to save the widow from poverty and from social alienation as well. Later on, you can read in Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy sorry, 25 that, that this kind of leveret marriage was desirable if this situation arose, but not compulsory. But at this point, it was the duty that the father-in-law, Judah, was supposed to oversee this so that the daughter-in-law, Tamar, was, was looked after and protected. It's worth saying at this point, if you've got questions about this, or anything in this series, we will have a question time at the end, and I'm hoping to time paternity leave 
so that Jeremy's very kindly answering all the questions <laughs> on anything that comes up today. <laughs> but if Judah's first-born um, son, Ur, was evil, literally, the second son, Onan, well, he's even worse. Onan fails completely to serve Tamar and instead acts selfishly. He uses Tamar for his own needs. He, he sleeps with her, and at the last minute, he pulls out. Why? Well, think about it. With only one other brother there, they would have both inherited half of the estate from, from the father. They would have inherited half of that each. But yet, if he sleeps with Tamar and raises up more of a family, then, then I guess the spoils are shared in a, in a kind of wider way, and they would go to Tamar's offspring. And so he's got no intention to follow through so that that was the case. Instead, he uses her. He, he abuses her. And it's pretty grim, isn't it? Verse 9 is so selfish. It's whenever he did this. That gives the indication this was repeated. This was regular. It's particularly grim reading. And so verse 10, we're told he too is judged by God. So two of the three brothers are dead. This family line is in jeopardy. And Judah's response is the dad is equally wicked. Look at verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. So he promises to Tamar, his, his third boy, uh, Shelah, but as we'll see in this story, he's got absolutely zero intention of fulfilling that promise. He, his role, Judah's role is supposed to be to protect and provide for Tamar, yet he shirks his responsibility, condemning her to a life of poverty and to a life of alienation. And worse than that, he, he blames Tamar for the death of his sons. He fails to grasp that, that his sons, his family, were the problem, not Tamar. And so at this point, Judah is an utter failure as a man, as a dad, as a father-in-law. And we ask the question, how can God use this guy? How can God use this family? How can God out of the wreckage of sin, bring any kind of good. So let's crack on to the second point that we see, Tamar's risk-taking faith. Uh, John said a few moments ago, if the first section was a bit kind of out there, this second section is certainly an 18-plus certificate. At verse 12, we're given a time marker. Did you see that in the text there? A long time has passed. And we're told that it's sheep-shearing season, sheep-shearing time. Uh, the commentaries tell me that this is um, kind of party season, okay, sheep-shearing time. So I think stag-do vibes, that's the kind of thing going on uh, in sheep-shearing time. And so we see verse 13. We're told, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had not now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. 
we thought it was already pretty weird, this is a whole other level, right? <laughs> as, I, as I looked at this earlier this week uh, for the first time, on my first read, I thought, what Tamar does here seems scandalous and, frankly, immoral, full stop. It's deceitful. Uh, she sleeps with her father-in-law. What's going on? <laughs> but we've got to reckon with what it says in verse 26, if we have a look down at that towards the end of the passage, where Judah says to Tamar, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. Literally, she is righteous, not I. What do we do with this as <laughs> we see those two things together? Well, first of all, let, let's just take a look at Judah for a few moments. Judah, again, he doesn't come off particularly well, does he here? Uh, Tamar apparently knows her father-in-law so well and his vices so well that all she needs to do is dress up like this by the side of the road and he will guaranteed fall for it. That's not great, is it? As he sees that. <laughs> and actually the fact here that a significant amount of time has passed shows that Judah has totally abdicated his promise to give that third son to her in accordance with Leverett marriage that I mentioned a few moments ago. What about Tamar, though? Well, so this is a one-off act, and it's a one-off act with the purpose of raising up offspring for Judah's firstborn in fulfillment to this lever at marriage, so that God's promises to Abraham can be kept alive. In other words, Tamar, she takes things into her own hands so that she gets herself pregnant by Judah as a surrogate for the third-born son, Shelah. Where Judah has completely bailed and given up on the promises of God, it seems that Tamar hasn't. Is deception wrong? Yes. Is Tamar a kind of model here to emulate? No. Did she feel pretty sort of enjoyed dressing up as a prostitute and going through this with a debt? No, she didn't enjoy that at all. But because of Judah's failings, because his lack of care for her as a daughter-in-law and lack of regard for God's promises of that serpent crusher and, uh, and the blessings of this family, Tamar turns to deceiving him. And as we see later, she is honoured for that. Now, did you notice the strong kind of echo of last week? Do you remember last week we saw that, um, that a garment was used, wasn't it, to deceive Jacob, the father. So, so they pretended that, uh, that Joseph had died and um, that his robe here had kind of been killed and, and they deceived the dad with this garment. Here, Judah is on the receiving end of that. He is deceived now with another garment, isn't he? But it is shocking. Look at verse 16. Halfway through 16. Judah, as he sees her on the roadside, come now, let me sleep with you. There's no, you know, can I take you out for a drink or buy you, buy you kind of dinner and see where the evening goes? None of that. It's classic Judah. He's led by his, his appetite for sex. And, and we ask, how, how can God use this guy? How can he use this family? How can he bring redemption from the wreckage of this sin? Well, we know that Tamar is savvy. And verse 18, uh, she asks for a, a deposit. So Judah promises her a goat, 
uh, that he sent to her. But, but actually here, she asks for more. So he gives his seal, his cord, and his staff. That's the kind of ancient equivalent to kind of, I don't know, phone, wallet, keys, that kind of thing that he leaves behind uh, with her. And so uh, this takes place. And then later on, after a little bit of time has passed, we read in verse 20, that meanwhile, Judah sent the young goats by his friend, the Adulamite, uh, I can't say this word, Adulamite, there we go, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anayim? There hadn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but we couldn't find her. Judah then is too cowardly to go back, so he sends a mate instead to go back, but they can't find her. Where is she? As they look round. Sort of like the, the guy who leaves his wallet behind in the brothel brothel. All, all he's concerned about is his kind of social uh, credibility and reputation. And it leads to the lowest point in the chapter in verse 24, where we're told this. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. As a result, she's now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. Judah here is a heartless hypocrite, isn't he? he? He jumps at the opportunity to get rid of this problem daughter-in-law of his. But of course the irony is essentially here, as he leads the cry of, of slut and whore towards her, that he completely forgets what he was doing three months earlier. And so as the shouts for her uh, to be dragged out and burned kind of get louder maybe in the crowd, Tamar pulls out her risky insurance policy in front of that crowd of onlookers as she puts those objects down that were given to her. You imagine at that moment that the tense music sort of dies down. The, the crowd shouts maybe just die down to silence as, as all eyes turn on Judah. What would he do? Confronted with this, this raw evidence. It's almost like he's sort of been caught with his metaphorical pants down here, isn't it? <laughs> what will he do? Will he deny knowing anything about it? Will he d d turn to deception? We know he's pretty good at that from elsewhere in Genesis. Well, actually, this is the key verse, verse 26. Let me read that again. Judah recognized his objects there. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. This is the turning point in the story. I, I think we could call this Judah's conversion, actually. After a lifetime of baggage and blame and evil, finally, finally, he says and does something noble. And so in this moment of, of humility, hum, humbled in front of these people here, he confesses. And do you know what? 
it leads to a complete and utter transformation of Judah in this Genesis story. Judah acts as a living, breathing example of redemption, of a totally and drastic change that takes place. We'll see in a few weeks' time, chapter 44, that this once, Judah, this, this, this once self-serving idiot becomes a humble leader, willing to sacrifice his life for his younger brother, Benjamin, that we'll see in a few weeks' time. Total and utter change in this guy. Yet Judah is not the hero of this story. And so the third thing we see, and the last point is this, God's astonishing grace. And I promise you, this is more positive <laughs> towards the end. After the drama of, of all that we've seen in this story so far, these last verses maybe seem a little bit odd. We're in the delivery suite, and surprise, it's twins. Verse 28, we're told this, as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hands. So the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on his wrist, and said, this one, come out first. But when he drew back his hands, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. His name, uh, he was named Zerah. After all of the horrors of what Tamar has been through, here she is given by God a double blessing of these twins. Maybe you're hearing this and you've got deja vu. I know this, I've heard this before. Well, it's because actually in chapter 25 of Genesis, we read almost the same thing with, with Jacob and Esau. So Perez here, whose name literally means breakthrough, like his grandfather, is the first to be born. And there's a hint here in this blessing of twins that's unpacked later that will show that actually the serpent crusher, the one whom the blessings will flow in this family, won't come from the oldest of Jacob's sons. But they won't even come through Joseph. They'll come through the line of Judah. The verse will come up on the screen later on. As Jacob, towards the end of his life, blesses his sons. And he says this of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The scepter, staff, they're kind of symbols of kingship. And so what this is saying is that a descendant of Judah will come who will one day rule the world. I wonder if we could just all turn in our Bibles to Matthew Chapter 1, just on page 965. It's worth us it's just turning there uh, to see this detail. Matthew chapter 1, the very first page of the New Testament, 965. And what we see here is, is the genealogy or the sort of family tree of which Jesus comes. And did you see what we see? Page 965, verse 3. Who do we see turn up? Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And from that family line, verse 6, we'll meet Jesse, the father of King David. Skip down to verse 16, and we see some familiar names, Joseph and Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Isn't that amazing from, from this family? Yet yeah, this family that we've read about 
will come the great King David in the Old Testament, but more than that will come Jesus, the Messiah. See, Tamar is not conveniently erased from the story of the Bible, but instead she is exalted because of her faith. God deems her worthy of carrying the seed, the, the offspring, that means that she, Tamar, will be God, Jesus' great, 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 whatever it is, grandmother. <laughs> Tamar took a risk here, risked her life for God's covenant family. And whatever her faults, she wanted the right thing, and she is given the incredible honor of being part of God's saving purposes. From the wreckage, utter wreckage of sin, God's astonishing grace bursts through like sun on a dark cloud on a dark day. And that's the story of, of the big Joseph story at the end, chapter 50, verse 20. Out of what was intended for evil, God will bring good. Judah in this chapter is a, let's be honest, he's a, he's a pathetic specimen of a man. He's a sexual sinner, he's a deceiver, he's a blamer, he's a rubbish dad. Yet he is humbled by God in this story and redeemed. And like with Judah, it can be painful for us, can't it, when God first reveals our sin, whether you're a Christian here or whether you're not. It be painful, can't it, as those shafts of sunlight maybe come through and pierce our lights. There'll be some here today who's perhaps, there'll be a sexual sin or sin more generally that just casts a, a kind of long shadow over your life, meaning that you can hardly sit in church here today. Perhaps it was a work trip a few years ago to the strip bar that you knew you probably shouldn't go along to, but you just ended up going along with the crowd and it's lived to haunt you most days since. Perhaps it's the, the addiction to pornography that you, you've just tried to break time and time again, but just keep on going back to it. Perhaps it's a, a past sexual relationship outside of a marriage context that, that maybe brings shame as you walk through the doors of church. Well, like Judah, repentance is needed. For some, that might be today for the first time. But for some, even when we confess our sin of, of whatever it is that we, we've done, we, we, we sort of write ourselves off, our situations off, and we think, I, I can't be useful to the Lord in any way because of that thing or that pattern. Hear this really, really clearly. Your sexual past, or, or sin more generally, does not have to be the end of your story. The Bible teaches that you can change that lives can be transformed. Be comforted that, that just as just as with Judah, God, God shows us a way out. The wreckage of sin in our life. friend a few years ago. Um, 
three, a good mate, and he um, he didn't. Uh, he, he was at church, and he didn't. He didn't turn up for uh, kind of few weeks, few months, and um, I tried to kind of get in touch with him and, and call him, and uh, could, could, sort of couldn't get through to him at all, and um, and then did in the end, and, and we met up, and he, uh, he he said to me, look, I've I've blown it with God. I've um, I met a girl in, in a club, and we kind of got. Got, kind of got chatting and those kind of things, and um, one thing led to another, and uh, we, she's, she's pregnant, and uh, I don't know what to do. I've blown it. <laughs> uh, what, what will God think of me? I can't come back to church. Um, what will I do? <laughs> one of the things I wanted to say to him that night was that God's grace was greater than his sin for whatever he had done. God's grace was greater still. And actually, he ended up getting married to that girl. They kind of carried on a relationship. They got married. Four days after their, their wedding day, um, the baby was born. That's quite a start to married life, I think it's fair to say. Um, and now he's, he loves Jesus, serving in the church. He leads the music team at his church. Our sins are many, but God's mercy is more. But this isn't just a story about Judas, it's a story about Tamar's as well, isn't it? See, from a place of, of disgrace and shame and the horrors of the things that were done to her in this story, she is exalted by God. The Me Too movement over the last few years has, has powerfully, hasn't it, highlighted the horrific experiences of many women, some men, but mostly women, and what has happened to them, not just in the world of Hollywood, but, but in the world more generally. Maybe the mention of sexual abuse, or even just hearing some of the things in this chapter, is deeply painful for some people here today. The way maybe that men have used you in your life. This chapter teaches that God, God sees, and he takes evil and sin very, very seriously. Yeah, there is hope here, isn't it, for Tamar's? <laughs> that God can shine a light even to the darkest of stories and redeem situations even like yours. Shall I finish? Uh, one of the, the joys um, working here at Trinity and, uh, is, is being involved in leading Christianity Explored courses or Life Explored courses. If you're not a Christian or kind of want think about these things, I'd really recommend doing them because it's a great chance to kind of ask different questions and, and something that often comes up on those courses is a question along the lines of God's grace, it sounds amazing, but how could God forgive someone, you know, say if Hitler became a Christian in the last two minutes of his life, how could God forgive him? Or how could God forgive someone like Judah, for example? Well, if we think it's impossible for God to forgive Judah, we haven't really understood grace. See, Judas' sin it is wicked and evil, and it needed paying for. But it was paid for by one of the descendants, the descendants at the end of that, that list of names in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't take sin lightly. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. But if you trust in Jesus, your story too becomes one of astonishing grace, doesn't it? 
that on the cross Jesus took our shame and guilt and redeemed our stories. We'll sing in a minute as we end the service. A wonderful hymn. In the middle verse, I think the, the author just gets this as she writes these words. A perfect redemption purchase of blood to every believer the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. I'll just leave a few moments um, quiet just to reflect on so maybe that God has spoken by his spirit to you today, you can think about that. And then John's going to lead us by the next part of our service.